welcome back to another impactful evening of the Impact Education Leadership Podcast, episode 184. I'm your host, ID3 for Ron Thurst. Today's panelists are Jerry Green, Carl Berry, and Buddy Thornton. Buddy Thornton, please say hello to the people. You know how much I love being here, and I love your fans, and I appreciate you inviting me back for another rant. It's another round. And Carl Berry, please say hello to the people. Walking in complete Texan. Howdy, everybody. And our special guest, Jerry Green, please say hello to the people, sir. Just want to say thanks again for having me on your uh, platform, and hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Well, today's topic is the child benefit theory. And there's a lot of things that came to my mind when I got the topic for today. One was artificial intelligence and children's rights. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the theory, the child benefit theory itself. So let's go around the panel. What was your thoughts when you got the topic for today? Who wants to go first? This year, I'll go first. I was just thinking that everything that's in the best interest of the student to be well-rounded, to get education and a safe and conducive environment to be productive in society. That's good. That's good. Who's next? This is Carl. Uh, my thought was controversial. I, uh, I thought about the big picture and I think those that have heard me before know that I am uh, a maybe guy. Everything is maybe. And I've gotten to the point where I look at both sides of a, a platform and I sometimes argue the point that I disagree with because I'm, I can argue about anything. I can debate anything. And so I find that I come up with a better understanding if I go from the opposite of what I believe to the opposing point of view. So I, I'm thinking pretty controversial on this, so I'm going to warn you of that in advance. Absolutely. And Buddy Thornton, what was your thoughts when you got the topic for tonight? Well, for today. <laughs> well, I have to echo uh, <clears throat> Carl's statement. You know, uh, the biggest problem with this decision uh, and, and uh, with the Supreme Court and how they have interpreted uh what we need to do to encapsulate uh, the college campuses is unfortunately going to be extended down through all the way to kindergarten and, and some of the uh, day schools because people like to expand a decision to fit their idea of what is right or wrong. And so we're going to go there today. Oh, yes, we are. So much has happened even before COVID-19. It was so much crime. You had black-on-black -black crime. You had police uh, on minority um, assaults, crime, drugs. You had the border situation. And then going into COVID-19, you had a, a, a pandemic that turned into an endemic that cost millions and millions of lives worldwide. Then everyone was forced to sit down in one place. We were all shut in. And while we were shut in, we had nothing to do but look and start things. We started podcasts. We, we looked at news. We saw the different situations. But one thing that we did see that, that really stuck out, it was something that had been going on for quite some time, but for some reason, somehow, some way, what we saw with George Floyd really hit us a different way. And then we, I guess, realized as a nation that there was a problem, that there was a problem called racism, that there was a problem called separation, there was a problem called division, that, that was a problem that we, I felt, began to address, but somehow it seemed like we were going, we started back going in a different direction. I don't know. The the. The panel's open. What's your thoughts? Is this nation going forward as as a nation, or are we going backwards, or are we staying the same? 
The panel's open. Who wants to take that? I'll step in. I think that a lot of people do not understand the historical perspective. And when you apply a standard that is only focused on the here and now, and you try to understand it without context, you create a problem. Especially when it comes to understanding how cultural awareness should be applied throughout culture, not just in the education space. And when you say the topic is child benefit theory, what you're saying is that it is a narrowly defined statement that state funds can be given to private schools so as long as it helps the child but who gets to define how it helps that child here in arizona there were parents who were actually trying to get on to the public dole with the seventy five hundred dollar benefit to move their child to a school and they were trying to apply it to swimming schools and they were trying to apply it to special interest sports schools and they were trying to do all kinds of things to get around the narrow, narrowly defined law. I don't know how it is in Texas, but I know that I've talked to people in California and other places, and the exact same thing has been happening. People will expand or contract any kind of benefit to fit their narrative, and they don't really care if they fit within the guidelines. Someone has to step up and say, wow, the guidelines cannot be self-defined. They have to be government-defined, and then they have to be applied with equity. And unfortunately, based on my research of looking at every state that has this dynamic, it is not being applied appropriately in any of them. That was so well said. And when you said it, I thought about the the resources that COVID-19 exposed as well. And those, we'll just say the low socioeconomic environments where a lot of kids did not have, a lot of students did not have those one-to-one devices a lot of those students did not have or possessed internet to even do their assignments at school and so then there was this this huge need to now let's fund some of these school districts so that they can or the, or the school districts took them took it upon themselves to fund those students with those devices that they knew they didn't have and then the students that didn't have even internet they made programs to uh, give out those hotspots to those students something that was not uh set in place in the beginning but anyway the panel is still open are we are we going forward as a nation are we staying the same or are we moving backwards well this is carl i gave you fair warning as i feel in a controversial mood today and I do sincerely believe what I say when I say we're always going forward. We don't have a racial problem. We have a sin problem in the world. And we are cautioned that money is the root of all evil. And most of the decisions that come down the pipe are not designed around what's best for the public, what's best for the community. It's designed what's best for the people that have the most. And that's always the case. And there's always a party that is being catered to. It could be a religious party or a political party or whatever other uh, silo that you live in. But I still am a man of faith, as most of you guys know, Ben. I know that all things work together for the good of the glory of what's going to ultimately happen. Uh, the the disease, uh, Satan, will always defend itself. So you can always look like you're losing a battle. But I remember when I was a little kid and the big bullies would knock me down, but I was not smart enough not to get back up and continue fighting. And so that's what's going on on the planet. And in the end, uh, it's going to come out to the benefit of the people, I believe. That's my controversial position it may change oh that's good that's good mr green what's your thoughts sir i would say and agree with carl we're moving forward but there is a anchor which is trying to slow us down and also i would say this right here and as an organization we have psa public service announcement 
And our public service announcement number 11 is educating the black student is a matter of national security. And so when I say that, you can't just think that the brightest students are going to be students who are not black and brown. So you're going to implode when you only think you can pull the best from the white community. Because we know some of the greatest inventions have come from individuals who are black and brown. So when we look at what's going on and we look at even the ed education system, it's not equity. The word equity is a new pimp word to get more money to school districts. Because so school districts get money and then they divert it to other, uh, they get it for black and brown students for selling test scores, but then they divert the money once they get it in to other things. Because long as you're saying black students are failing, then you always gonna be able to get money. That's the game that school districts run and that's the game that they continue to run on our community. But you're going to have to, and let me back up. COVID did a couple things. COVID exposed the inequities within school districts, like someone was saying about the buses, devices, and also internet connection. But also it exposed that many teachers cannot teach and have no relationship with black and brown students. And because of that, and parents then were, when you said prior to COVID, hey, my student goes to school online or I'm homeschooling my student, then people looked at you like you were strange. But COVID made it a regular thing. And now what I see in the next three to five years is students are gonna be able to not go to failing schools say in Southern California, but go to successful schools online in New York because of what happened during COVID. So it's gonna change the dynamics of how schools are being ran. And also we see it because students are not returning to traditional schools. So we have a big student uh, drop off within K-12 school districts. Oh, it's gonna be good today. All right, let's go a little bit deeper. I want to go further. Let's go further. Can we go further? Can we go further? Let's talk about affirmative action. I was deeply saddened by the Supreme Court's ruling on June 29, 2023, concerning affirmative action. And Buddy Thornton says something that was so apropos. He said, do we really know the historical perspective well, here, here it is. Here, here's the history. And in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson issued the affirmative action requiring all government contractors and subcontractors to take affirmative action to what? Expand job opportunities for minorities. That was the reason for affirmative action. All the other avenues and branches and legs, whatever you want to call them, comes from that. But affirmative action, okay, was instituted for job opportunities. Now, does it impact minorities in the United States? I would say yes. Is it going to affect education in the United States? I would say yes. But the real thing it's going to affect is job opportunities. Anyway, the panel is still open. What are your thoughts about what I just said? Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, let's Jerry, go, I'll let's go, go here. Go ahead. Go, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Well, when you bring up uh, affirmative action and the roots of affirmative action, you are addressing exactly where we need to understand people go. Uh, it was designed to allow an expansion of the pie. It was not designed to limit other people from participating. And the problem with that was there were no lane markers. There were no explanations. People were allowed to free drift for at least 25 to 30 years and apply affirmative action 
as they saw it related to them. And because there were no lane markers, people got habituated to thinking, if I'm going to allow minorities, black, brown, Pacific Rim, whoever, to have affirmative action support, it's going to limit my ability to compete with them, which was never stated in the law, was never stated in the purpose, and should never have even been brought to the table. It was simply, we need to expand the pie and allow everyone access to the job market and realize that the unserved population will be a burden on society if they are not allowed to participate. It was never to limit other people's participation. And when the Supreme Court made their ruling, what they were saying is something that was never written into the law. Oh, we're going to stop affirmative action because it blocks other people's access. And that was never part of the law. So that's that's where I'll go when I answer my question uh, later. Oh, that was good. Who's next? The Sherry. Also, the individual who actually reaped the most from affirmative action has been a white woman. So it wasn't hasn't even been minorities. And the other thing is, is they act as if someone who gets the position in school or in the job is not qualified. That's the biggest thing is there's, you know, even looking at um, uh, Supreme Justice Jackson, she's the most qualified on, on the uh, bench. But they look at this like it, it's, a, it's a step down when someone black comes in a room, but they have many times the credentials and more. But the playing field is not level because it goes back to a phrase that people non-white have to be better to just to compete, to get an equal footing, if they ever will. And I'll stop here. Uh, this is Carl Controversial Barry again. Bring it. And I'm saying that because I was hired a mid-level manager with one of the largest corporations that exist on the planet. For anonymity's sake, I won't call their name. But I was hired uh, without a college degree, I should add, that was required for the job. And I echo uh, Mr. Green's position because that company was trying to prove I was working in a business-to-business environment, and they were documenting evidence that stated that the American businessman was not going to accept blacks and females in a sales position. Uh, we can't force them to do that. And they were creating numbers to prove that and had started hiring people without degrees and track their, their race and not their degree because the assumption was everybody had the job, had a degree. I broke every sales record that had existed. And as I said, we're going forward whether we want to or not. Three years later, that same company that did not want to exercise affirmative action was over quota in blacks and females because the businessmen not only accepted, they would welcome the black in uh, to see, can this joker really talk? Does he have any intelligence? Who is he? And then some of them would uh, be hitting on the females. So, again, money rules. Uh, they might want to do it for whatever reason, but once they see that it's profitable, the scenario and the background will and has changed. Oh, I, I told you this was going to be a quagmire. I told you it was going to be a quagmire. And we coming out of this thing. Affirmative action leads me to another critical decision. That is the child benefit theory. What is the child benefit theory? Well, it's a principle that says state funds can be given to private school students if it helps the child. Child benefit theory means that it is allowed if buying textbooks for all children in the state, including those in private schools, can benefit the child. However, we run into little things like financial aid. 
we we run into things like direct government aid to religious schools and does that violate our amendments does that violate the 14th amendment does that violate the first amendment like it has been said that affirmative action does <laughs> the panel is open what are your thoughts I think that what most people need to understand is that a lot of people just ignore what the Constitution says when it's in their best interest. They will try to cling to whatever benefit is offered for as long as it's offered. And that's a reversal of the thinking that we need across society. I can give you two examples. Number one, long before race became an issue with anybody back when, uh, uh, you know, people were traveling the Silk Road in the Middle East to go to China to trade. The only way you ended up being an enslaved person was if you lost a battle to a superior force and you were enslaved by a country and made to serve their people. It didn't matter what the color of your skin was. Whites were slaves to blacks. Blacks were slaves to Chinese. It, if you were a defeated people, you became a slave. Fast forward 2,000 years, and now we know that, of course, slavery is uh, not uh, in the best interest of humanity. But we still have the mentality that if we can overpower somebody else, we should be able to treat them as less than. The child benefit theory still has a lot of road bumps. They, they, it has lane markers that do not fit within the narrative because it benefits the wrong people. There are no caps on who can be benefited by government money. It ignores a lot of other barriers and a lot of other benefit trees. And so it skews the market. Let's assume a family uh, has three or four children and the parents both work and they still make sufficient money. They make say 150 K a year. And yet they don't have the ability to move their child from one part of the city to another because it would impact their jobs negatively. So they can't participate in this program as the population in the campus in their area dwindles. The money dwindles to go to that campus. Some of the teachers leave. Now their children are going to get a substandard education, even though they have an above standard uh, income. So there's a lot of skews to this uh, child benefit theory that do not fit the narrative. And uh, I'll leave it at that until I come to uh, later my question later in the podcast. Oh, that's that's so good. That's that's why I mentioned the financial aid, because if if we're talking about constitutional, there's supposed to be a separation of church and state. And so if you have a religious institution that happens to teach and and draw government funded money is is that constitutional is what I'm saying is is church related schools constitutional to receive financial aid now. I say give them financial aid because it's education. But when we're talking about what's deemed constitutional and what's deemed unconstitutional, is that fair based off of the child benefit theory? By the way, the panel's still open. What are your thoughts? So, so, so let me say this. There is no separation between church and state because when a church a nonprofit then its actions are governed by the state. But many pastors will now give up that benefit to be able to then speak freely. That's why they can govern the tongue of the ministers in many communities, because they want the nonprofit write-offs of things. So now back to the child benefit theory is I believe in the voucher system because I feel parents should be able to send their kids to successful schools. They should not have to send their kids to the neighborhood schools. And we don't have compulsory education. And what that means is, is forcing kids to go to school to get education we got compulsory attendance. Whereas we, it doesn't matter if the kid learns or not, the kid but better be in the seat. And that's a huge difference. So I agree 
that we need uh, the child benefit theory to benefit the student. But the other challenge you have is when you have a union, a teacher's union, which is as powerful as it is, then that's going to skew the perception and the politics and how the law is written because of their strong lobbyists and people they have on the payroll. Uh, I'd like to rebut that a little bit. Um, in Arizona, more than 70% of the people who participate in the voucher system make over 150 k a year. There's no cap on income for people using the voucher system. Those people are also the ones who own businesses or are not tied to an hourly existence. So they have the ability to move their children across town to take them to one of the superior schools. But this automatically omits any per parent who is in a locked hourly system or who does not have the capacity economically or physically to move their children across town to a superior school. So what you're doing is you're creating an equal but separate situation. We eliminated separate but equal back in 1954 with Ferguson versus Plessy. But we are now creating an equal but separate because we're saying, yes, we're going to give you equal access to the funding. But if a parent or a family cannot utilize that funding and so they don't partake in that benefit, they have equal access, but they do not have equal opportunity or equal utility. So we're now creating an equal but separate system. We flipped the script and we're now punishing people because they have to work for a living. And that is why the voucher system is crap, in my word. Again, I asked the question, are we moving I, forward? I, I, I can receive that. that that's, that's a good perspective. I can see that. Again, I asked the question, gentlemen, are we moving forward as a nation? Are we staying the same or are we going backwards or, or are we repeating history um how do you feel the panel's open how do you we're, feel oh go ahead please please i'm just gonna say we're always again gonna be moving forward i'm gonna say maybe the voucher system is good maybe it's bad i'm gonna use buddy's word is that the problem is those people in power try to skew the situation so that the outcome is what they desire but you know it doesn't make any difference what books you got uh it doesn't make any difference of what building they go to in the end you still got teachers i went to the only all-black school in the state of kansas because a black person had killed a white person so they segregated one school and forced all of the teachers and all of the students that were black into one school but that school has the greatest legacy of education and the greatest legacy of money earned, the greatest legacy of success in chess, in foreign language, in music, because of the dedication of the people using the books, the dedication of the people that were in the dilapidated schools. So we gotta still realize that there is a supreme being and it's not the church, nor is it the government that's going to change things. The, we change people and we change cultures, one person, one family at a time. And as long as we, the people, become the people, take our heads out of the stand, saying, quit being ostriches and watch the Fox and the CNN and all these different news channels, instead of saying, I don't want to see it, it's depressing. No, look at it and then be discerning and then decide what's good and what's bad and where you stand and do what you think you should do. And in the end, it's going to continue moving forward. Jerry Green, you brought us to this point. Buddy Thornton, the positive social change agent, pro, you brought us to this point. And, of course, Carl Berry, you brought us to this point. Now, what I mean by point, I'm speaking of point of view. And based off of your points of view, as it relates to child benefit theory, how do you feel about the representation of minorities, school populations, and how they're being represented with the child benefit theory based off of your points of view. The panel is open. Who wants to take that first? 
Well, I, I, I've been going last. I'm going to go first on this one. Uh, I'm going to stick with my controversial stance. And what I'm going to say is there's less minorities now than ever. We already know that uh, the uh, people of color by 2040 will be the majority. So we got to quit calling them minorities. And then we know we've got uh, so much interracial marriages now. You don't even know what the kids are anyway till you follow them home and see who their mama and their daddy is. And again, we've got to go back to the basic fundamentals of content of character and get away from racially profiling and try to work out what's best for the community. We've got to realize, though, we're fighting evil in high places, and the people that are making the decisions are making them monetarily, I think, and not spiritually. I have to agree with uh, Carl. Uh, first of all, we all know the demographic. By 2040 or around that time, this is going to be a minority-majority nation. There will not be a white minority that can stand alone against any kind of a coalition of other groups. Right? What you're seeing right now in the early 2020s, is you're seeing a government ran by a dwindling majority who is doing anything and everything in their power to try to mandate that they stay in power, knowing that within 20 years, at the outside, 20 years, they are no longer going to be a powerful enough majority to hold sway if the other people can create a coalition that acts against them. And I think you're going to see the first evidence of that in the 2024 elections, because nobody likes any of the candidates right now that are on the table. What they're going to want is they're going to want a candidate for the people, not for the conservatives, not for the liberals. They're going to want someone who's going to speak for the people. And I think by 2028, when we have that election, you're going to see a candidate who is no longer going to be one of the two major parties. It's going to be an open candidate who is going to be able to win because the, the center middle, the, the moderate middle, is going to be bigger than either one of the parties enough to where they will be able to control every election moving forward. And Carl is absolutely correct. It has to be on honor, integrity, and character. It cannot be on a political agenda. I agree. The challenge I see, though, it, well, it, I, I agree, and I'll reiterate what uh, Mr. Carl said is that decisions that are made at school districts too many times are political or economical on behalf of the administration and teachers versus the students. I do see the whole infrastructure of this country becoming another apartheid, just like what was going on in South Africa. A small number, the numbers be smaller, but they're in controlling power until the people unite, come together and say they want something different. And then when they get in charge, they need to make the changes they need to make for it to set everything in stone to move forward. So I do agree. Well, really quick. Let me make a suggestion. Go ahead. Why don't we consider what's in the books that we're trying to promote? Because we know that burning books was not a good practice. But we also got to understand and recognize that black history is American history. The books don't reflect accurately any of history because the people in power always control the books. So again, we're back at going and doing and looking for the truth if we want to set people free, I'm going to give it back to you, Isaac, because I know you want to wrap it up. Well, you know what? Since you said that, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm here. Is there a constitutional problem with approving child benefit theory based off of what we've said so far, especially in those religious-based schools? Is it constitutional? And is it a problem? Is it a constitutional problem? Well, I'm going to echo what Jerry said, because 
truth of the matter is we are confused. We've been lied to and made to believe that there's a law that separates church and state. But that is a interpretation of what the law was. And we've had some instances where there have been people that have done things deliberately, the public health system, PHS, which uh, Reagan initiated, Trump revitalized the last system, tried to bridge the gap between church and state. I have a guy on my board that is a nationally recognized city manager. He says that cities, you can have the best police, you can have the best uh, uh, cleanup system, you can have the best a fire department, but if the churches and the government aren't united, you can't do anything successfully. So what I'm saying is the benefit theory is a problem, but the benefit theory we want to event that I want to see addressed is the content of the book and not what we do. Because in, once we tell the truth about all things, all things, and what I'm saying is this is not going to be popular, but the, the thing about 1960, some of the things they did to improve the relationship of blacks and browns ruined it. You look at the black family prior to 1960, they were intact families to the tune of 65%. 20 years later, 78% of the men in those families were gone. Because they could leave home, they could get, you know, government support, and then some of them would come back home and live off the government dollar. So, I don't know if I answered your question. I don't know if I'll ever get on another podcast. <laughs> well, we have to bring you back, of course. You, you talked about so many things, and, and I'm, I'm concerned. I'm concerned. I, of course, I'm concerned for the children, but a, a child doesn't get here without the parents. And so are parents really being supported? Do they know what's going on? That confusion you were talking about? COVID-19 exposed it. The pandemic exposed the lack of support for, for learning, for parents learning, the lack of support and equity uh, and, and learn about equity. COVID-19 also exposed the, the lack of digital devices and internet that parents did not have or they, they couldn't support their children with. And you talked about those, you know, back in the day, you know, you had those summer enrichment programs that all the kids in the neighborhood went to. And whether it was a boys club, a girls club, you don't really hear about those as much as now. Those those clubs that kids had to go to during the summer. And they had those special rates that they could go to. or And if they didn't go there, they had those those neighborhood recreation centers that were so popular back in the day when, when the kids would actually get out the house and weren't stuck in playing video games. And they had, parents had those literacy resources available for them, for, for their, their children. And everything was so much more interactive as a community. But you and I gotta go to you for this because you, we call you the positive social change agent pro because you get questions like these all the time about supporting our youth, about supporting our families, especially during and after COVID-19, that outbreak. Why should stakeholders in public schools be aware of these practices to access additional resources as, as needed so that they can support their scholars? And, and how do they get the access? What avenues would you use or did you use to make this happen for for your your family, for your kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids? I hope I said it right. Well, you did actually say it right. And before I answer, I want to say I really, really uh, enjoyed Jerry and Carl's uh, answers to the, this topic because it takes a lot of people who are willing to be friends but share their diverse opinions to ever make any kind of progress in this world. And I do agree. I think we are circling the drain. We are moving forward slowly, but we're circling the drain in some topical areas. It's not just uh, education. But to answer your question, 
what I've done with a lot of parents who have come to me and said, you know what, I, I don't think this is fair and I can't put my kids into this voucher system because I've got no way to get them from here to there. And my answer has always been, you know, what it takes a community to raise a community. It is the parent's job to turn out a perfectly functional adult child, but at the end of the day, if they don't have the support of their neighbors and their community, sometimes barriers crop up that are just impossible for one or two people to go, to get over. What we've done is we've created grassroots uh, groups where we have gotten someone who's gotten a van. We've had parents who did not have the ability to take their kids to a better school, uh, you know, agree to give a small amount of the stipend to whoever was operating that van to offset fuel costs because they were already going to be driving their child across town to a school why can't my child ride with you? And so we've created some carpooling situations. We've created some initiatives to better some of the schools by uh, attracting, uh, you know, the right type of volunteers to the school as opposed to just paid educators. And we have tried to cross the digital divide by allowing some students to attend better schools, but do it with a hybrid system where they're doing some digital work as well as in, in-person attendance and, you know, as long as we can continue moving forward and we can make progress, parents need to understand that their greatest resource is in their community. It is not in not knowing who your neighbor is. If you don't know your neighbor's children's names, you're not a member of your community. You have to be a part of your local community before you ever worry about anything above that. So what I've done is I've tried to create across this entire area, and there's six and a half million people in the Phoenix metro area, I've tried to create silos of people who think community first, get out, knock on doors, have block parties, start to share your pain with other people. And you know what? There have been people who have stepped up and said, you know what? I'm taking my child over to Brophy, which is one of the prep schools here. Uh, if your child is going to attend there, I'll be more than glad to let them carpool with us. And they and the more affluent people who are moving their kids across town have stepped up and said, you know what? It's not fair that my child is not uh, in the same in, in situation as your child. So, you know what, if you need something or you need some help or you need a way to get over this roadblock, just ask and I will help you. It's called building community. It's called caring about your neighbor and it's called, understanding that the government is not here to help you. They're here to help themselves. And as long as that's the dynamic, communities can defeat government stupidity. And that is why we call him Buddy, the positive social change agent pro. Let me go to Jerry Green. Jerry Green, first off, hey, man, thanks for coming to the podcast. Well, I really love your passion. Let the listeners know a little bit about what you're doing currently and who you are. So we are the Black Student Advocate, and we stopped the pre-scooter prison pipeline by advocating for black employees and black students across the country. We take calls in, and we stand in the gap, and we address school districts to let them know when they are in violation of student civil rights or ed codes. And ed code is when you're in a school district, you have education code. If you get pulled over by the police, it's penal code. Both of them are governed by legislation, which is your elected officials. And Mr. Green, please be candid with us. What was your thoughts when the Supreme Court made the decision to overturn the affirmative action? And, and how, in uh, your thoughts, did it affect black and brown students and and females females as well women it, it just just cherry picking the state to stay on top because we don't talk about legacy at these universities we don't talk about donors when their parents names are on buildings or grandparents names are on buildings they're pretty much a shoe in to get in if their parents or grandparents attended that university they're shoe in to get in but again when you start talking black and brown, is as if these students are not qualified. So what I think needs to happen to combat that is, again, I agree with uh, what Mr. Thornton said about community. Because the work we do, and we're, we work within a three-legged stool. It's us being the advocate, 
then it's also the community, and then it's the household. All three of them working together is going to produce a great student who can add to the society. So when I hear what's going on, I think uh, parents have to get their students to do SAT, ACT tests and look at more standardized tests because that's the measuring stick and that's the game in which you have to enter and play. So if your students start doing tests like that earlier, they're more confident. And to take them tests later, and that can be part of the uh, measurement to actually get into some desired universities their student might want to go into. The other thing we hear of, oh, because of the uh, affirmative action, we're going to have all these black students now want to go to HBCUs. HBCUs already are busting at the seams. So if you just had 10 to 15% of the students that go to PWI, predominantly white institutions, black students go to HBCUs, historically black and uh, college and university, they wouldn't be able to handle it because of the infrastructure. So that's, that's another dilemma in what's going to affect the community. And also understand at this point, HBCUs have anywhere from 5 to 20% of non-black students that's on their campus who are the minority who reap the benefit. So that goes back to what uh, Mr. Thornton was saying. You see the reverse and seeing the system being used by others also. So I just see it as it's just cherry-picking to what they think can close the door on competitiveness. Because in this country, we don't have a problem with race until you want to be competitive. Then that's when racism kicks in. Wow. Let's open up the panel really quick because Buddy said something that was so apropos. Building communities. But I pose this question. Okay, building community, communities is good. It's one thing. But how do you build a sustainable community? How do you build a sustainable community? How do you build a community community that's not only stable, but also equitable? The panel's open. What's your thoughts? That's what I do. That's what I do. Community care is my mantra. And we have a resource council that we operate. And it's just that. All of the resources in a place where you can call the council and find somebody that can help you get to school, help you get your bills paid, help you. Uncle George is getting out of prison, help you. We got wound problems and you're severe diabetic. Again, what he said about community is the answer. We got to do the work. Connection and collaboration is the way you build community. Problem is, is you can't watch all of the old reruns of Law and Order 24-7. Sometimes you got to turn off the TV, get out of the house, and go to where the people need help are. I want to add something to that. And Carl, I love that 100%. The bottom line is very simple. You know, there's two mantras. Number one, if it is going to be, it has to be me. And Anyone who is not willing to step up to the plate does not belong or at least should not have any say-so over what happens in a community. If you're not involved, keep your mouth shut. I try to build people and create situations where people are comfortable coming together and arguing a point until they find a solution, not just patting people on the back and saying, yeah, we're just gonna do what John said. That is not a community. A community is people who do not have to be like-minded, but they do have to be focused on the same solution. And the solution should be a fully sustainable community. What we try to do is we try to identify what we call deserts. If we have a desert where there's no pharmacist, we need to find a pharmacist who's willing to go into that desert to serve the population at the right price for the right reason. If there's no instructor for martial arts, and there's kids who are out on the streets and they're expending a lot of energy by doing damage because they've got no other focus, then we need to find a way to help someone in the community become a, a, a studio owner so they can get those kids off the street, get them in somewhere, teach them discipline and purpose. And that's what we do. We find where the deserts are 
And we move people toward those deserts in a way that overlaps other people so that services and hope can be re-emerging in all of those areas. And, you know, I've, I've been tasked to do that in several areas and in several projects. And so far, I've never found people who were unwilling to help. All they need to really know is what the problem is. If they know what the problem is and it's defined in a proper way at the local level, people will always step up. I agree, and I like what Mr. Thornton said about community, because what what I found in the work we do is that the parents are suffering from PTSD. They had such a traumatic experience when they were in school that they don't even want to go back for their baby's sake. So if you have another community member who's willing to go in when that parent has to go to school and listen or be there even on the phone because the worst thing a parent can do is go to a school district to have a meeting by themselves. They always need to have a buddy on the phone or a buddy in the chair next to them to help them and to give them the confidence to speak freely on behalf of their students. So the community piece is so vital because with that, then you're going to have the school district who is undergirded then by the community. And if you have someone who is not doing right, who is an employee, then the community will be behind the parent to help rectify that problem. And that's such a key element of what's going on. Listen, this was another impactful day of the Impact Education Leadership Podcast. Our guests today were Jerry Green, Carl Berry, and Blake Thornton, Apostle Change Agent Pro. Jerry. Leadership Podcast. Facebook.